Welcome to Podcast Sans Frontieres, a Metal Gear Solid audio experience. Here, we infiltrate the narrative, interrogate the characters, extract the themes, via Fulton, of course, and finally face down the technological behemoth that is the Metal Gear franchise. People call mercenaries like us dogs of war. My name is Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. I'm Brian, also known as Cosmos, also known as Cosmos. It's a double branding. I'm, I'm branded everywhere. Perils of the internet. I know very little, but I know very much that that is Cosmos. <laughs> Welcome to our very first episode covering the Metal Gear Solid franchise proper. Uh, this episode is titled Video Game Players, huh? Uh, a direct quote from Metal Gear Solid 1998 for the Sony PlayStation. Uh, before we get started, I wanted to give a spoiler warning for this and every episode. Everything is declassified. We know who Sigint becomes. We know who Meryl marries. We know the fate of Master Kazuhiro Miller. This is not a playthrough podcast. It's all on the table for discussion as we progress through the games. And in addition to that, I do want to give a couple additional warnings um, that will apply for the rest of the series, but I'm not going to waste time going over each time. Uh, the first one, and maybe the obvious one, is we are going to make mistakes. There's enough snakes, bosses, octopuses, and ocelots to keep keep us keep tripping us up as I trip over that sentence. So we're going to try our damn best to get that stuff right. And of course, the story is purposefully convoluted, opaque. These conclusions and interpretations are our own, and the games are specifically. Uh, created in a way for players to draw their own interpretation. So what we're saying here is not gospel, even though we both have a long track record of being right about most things. <laughs> and additionally, we're we're not going to really go fully in depth in all the production notes, um, all the regional releases, every date, every credit. Um, we're going to do our best to convey uh, properly who has worked on this project, but we are probably going to say the name Hideo Kojima uh, in place of uh, his team or Konami, uh, sometimes vice versa. So uh, when we invoke, uh, you know, St. Kojima, uh, please note that there's a strong team behind him and that has been with him through most of the series um, that do a lot of the work. And we don't want to elide the fact that, you know, this is not the creation of just one man, just like any movie game uh, isn't the creation of any one person. It's even tougher because the company is called Kojima at this point. Like, it's Kojima Productions. So instead of just saying Kojima Productions, I'll probably just say Kojima when I really mean, like, well, I won't say, not for Yoji Shinkawa, but like anyone else, I think, yeah, it's it's fair game. I don't really want to... It, it, that's a, sort of the thing with Japanese games anyways. They don't always... They are more, I wouldn't say they're more collaborative, but the crediting has never been accurate, I would say. Yeah, and I think that's definitely something that's also a little bit cultural, too. Um, just yeah. the difference be between uh, Japan, America, a lot of Asia and America, being someone from an Asian country originally. Um, I can definitely vouch there's a different kind of perspective. But also in Japan, they like, oh, wait till the end of the movie to, you know, watch all the credits as a sign of respect. That's um, very different from here where we wait to the end to see what the next Marvel movie is going to be. To see Nick Fury show up, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, but we'll do our best. But uh, most gamers or anyone who's played games will probably know the name Hideo Kojima. But and I'd say maybe what fifty percent might know Yoji Shinkawa. That's pretty much the two people who are most associated with that. Yoji Shinkawa, by the way, is the art designer, um, art director for the Metal Gear Solid series. Um, so a lot of his art is how people are familiar with the um, game and series. And then maybe just the last um, 
Last warning here, um, we're not a playthrough podcast. Um, we're not going to tell you where to find every item, every weapon, how to get every last camo, although we are going to talk extensively on getting those camos when we get to Metal Gear Solid 3. Um, so if you're looking for trips, secrets, or you know how to infiltrate OKB0 in under a minute and a half, um, you're not going to find that here. Um, maybe we'll drop it, but that's not the purpose of this podcast. Yeah. All right, let's get into it. Today, we kick off our examination proper of the Metal Gear Solid video game from 1998, released on the Sony PlayStation, burst of its name. Uh, We'll use this episode to create some context for the game's arrival, um, the impact of the game itself, and how it set the standard for the rest of the franchise. But before we do that, we need to give a little summary about Metal Gear Canon coming into Metal Gear Solid 1998. There were two games released on the MSX, uh, which is a system that never made its way to North America, to my knowledge. We did get a port of Metal Gear, um, the first game released in 1987. Um, The U.S. got a non-canonical sequel to that called Snake's Revenge. Meanwhile, Japan, again on the MSX, did get a secondary title called Metal Gear 2 Solid Snake. Uh, Both of the MSX titles are considered canon um, and are basically... Um, kind of blueprints for what we'll see once we get to the Solid series. Um, But to give you a quick summary of uh, first Metal Gear 1 from 1987, it is set in the year 1995. Future year, 1995. Yes. Um, This is actually a key disclaimer we should probably throw in. So um, for all the somewhat present-day Metal Gear games, they're always set in the near future from when they actually came out. So, Which is a... uh which is not to get ahead of ourselves. That's a very John Carpenter sort of thing to do. That's probably where he got that from. Yes. And that's something that I, I feel is, I feel confident saying is wholly a Kojima idea. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So anyways, uh, rewinding back to the near future of 1995, uh, Foxhound agent Gray Fox is sent to infiltrate and neutralize the newly fortified state Outer Heaven, which is supposedly led by some legendary mercenary. This mission is known as Intrude and 312. All contact is eventually lost with Fox, uh, whose last transmissions were cryptically referred to quote-unquote Metal Gear. Metal Gear. There we go. There's that impression. (laughs) Following this, rookie Foxhound agent Solid Snake is sent in to determine what happened to Gray Fox on his own mission, Intrude N313, which was also the name of our introductory episode for this podcast. Uh, Snake has a full support staff at the ready, led by his commanding officer known as Big Boss. Upon rescuing Fox, Snake learns that Metal Gear is a bipedal nuclear tank, which Outer Heaven hopes to leverage to become a global superpower. As Snake goes further into his mission, he discovers that the mercenary leading Outer Heaven is none other than his commanding officer, Big Boss. Uh, Big Boss has been using his relationship with the U.S. military to secretly fund and stockpile Outer Heaven before its arrival on the international scene. Snake would eventually face Metal Gear and Big Boss, defeating both, but after the credits roll, Big Boss has a message for Solid Snake, saying that they will meet again. It was definitely the same guy. Definitely, definitely the same guy. Definitely did not meet a phantom of this big boss uh, elsewhere in the series. Moving on to Metal Gear 2 Solid Snake. uh, Four years after the Outer Heaven Uprising, 
A scientist key to the future of biofuels is taken captive in Zanzibar land, a Central Asian country and border region surrounding Afghanistan and the former Soviet Union, and also not to be confused with the actual country, Zanzibar. Not really sure where that comes from, but... It might actually come from the translations and localizations from Metal Gear Solid, so... Yeah, yeah. But uh, new Foxhound commander Roy Campbell brings in then-retired Solid Snake to infiltrate Zanzibar land and rescue the scientist, Dr. Marv. Uh, During this mission, Snake meets a different doctor, Dr. Mannar, who has previously developed Metal Gear for the Outer Heaven Uprising, but he was brought in to work on a new Metal Gear for this new uprising here in Zanzibar land. More importantly, Mannar reveals that the leader behind Zanzibar land is, again, Big Boss, who somehow, quote-unquote, survived the events of the first game. Uh, Snake would go on to take down Zanzibar land, confront Metal Gear D., um, which which ends up being piloted by his old friend, Gray Fox. Snake defeats both the mech and the pilot, leaving Gray Fox for dead after a brawl in the middle of a minefield. Um, at this moment, uh, Big Boss would reveal himself, but Snake ends up defeating him thanks to a makeshift flamethrower, uh, which he had left in his inventory. It was the last items he had. And I'm pretty sure a direct homage to uh, Live and Let Die, mm-hmm. where Roger Moore uses uh, shaving cream and a cigar to... Uh, light a snake on fire that had gotten into his room. So, whew. Um, I know that was a little bit of a mouthful, but I think it's important because a lot of this canon is carried forward into uh, Metal Gear Solid, even though Metal Gear Solid and most Metal Gear games are treated as you can play this as your first Metal Gear game. Well, Solid in particular is almost a remake of Metal Gear 2. Like, it has a lot of the same, like, structure. Yeah. Which is... uh, which is really odd, and I it was deliberate, but I'm not sure if it was supposed to be... It seems like a part of it, like maybe the initial idea for it was to be like a remaster before that concept, you know, 15 years before that concept was the thing. And then Kojima just added more and more to it, and they just realized it was his own game. But it, it's a very strange... Like if you watch a playthrough of 2 and you've never played it and you've played solid, it's a little weird. It's a little like off-putting how similar it is yeah um there are people who uh who have played metal gear 2 before playing uh, metal gear solid and they find metal gear solid which is considered one of the greatest games of all time just lacking after that um i think in kojima's favor since uh metal gear 2 never made it to north america um that was a big reason it was pretty easy probably to lift a lot of it yeah um and as we'll talk about shortly with the landscape of video games um, as video games kind of started moving into three dimensions um, and working in 3D spaces, uh, we'll see that a lot of franchises will take a successful 2D uh, version or concept and then just basically try to scale that up into a larger three-dimensional world. Um, but put a pin in that because we're going to come right back down to it. Um, a little, Just a little note about some of the production of these MSX games. Um, the original Metal Gear from 1987 was basically designed, or it was given to Kojima as, please make us an action-adventure military game. Um, but due to system limitations, uh, cartridge limitations, um, and I'm sure budget constraints, uh, Kojima was never able to turn in a action-adventure military game. Instead, he decided to create a a game around the idea of hide-and-seek and um, and stealth, Um, and this is what would eventually spawn Metal Gear for its 1987 release. (laughs) Legend has it that he he was inspired by playing hide-and-seek in the forest around his childhood home. I'm I'm joking, that's Miyamoto with Zelda. 
<laughs> uh, he definitely did it at a place that he, they used to call Mado Shoza's. Yeah. So Kojima's childhood memories of fighting giant robots in his in his childhood neighborhoods. Yeah. And then I, I think at this point, Kojima thought Metal Gear was pretty much one and done. Um, but apparently he was on a train uh, into Tokyo and uh, a developer who had worked on Snake's Revenge uh, for the NES uh, came up to him and said, dude, I love Metal Gear. Um, and I, apparently they talked for a while and that developer's love for the original Metal Gear uh, made Kojima sit down and start writing Metal Gear 2 Solid Snake on a cocktail nap. And, and supposedly he had most of the story you know, ready by the end of his car ride. We've heard all sorts of apocryphal myths like that all, all across entertainment. So um, who knows how much of that I believe. Um, but I think Metal Gear 2 is really the point where Metal Gear as a inspiration and as a going concern kind of really settles in Kojima's mind. Yeah, for sure. So games in 98, like the, the interesting thing, I think what's interesting about Metal Gear 2 being, or Metal Gear Solid being sort of a, a remake of 2 is that it wasn't a, it wasn't a completely unknown game, but even like you were talking about with the, going into 3D, the difference between Metal Gear Solid and everything else that came out in 1998, which is a an historically good year for video games. I have up here just the basic Wikipedia of critically quote unquote critically acclaimed titles from from 1998, and you got like Resident Evil 2 came out in January. That's a good game with a with a good story. Xenogears, 1080 snowboarding, Need for Speed 3, Hot Pursuit, Tekken 3. StarCraft. I love StarCraft. The level of storytelling between the original StarCraft and Metal Gear, those games may, may as well have come out 20 years apart. The original Unreal came out. Banjo-Kazooie came out. F-Zero X. Great game. And, and you got like NFL Blitz. Grim Fandango is the only one even close. And that's just a very different kind of storytelling. Turok 2, Seeds of Evil. Crash Bandicoot Warped. FIFA 99. The original Half-Life, which in its own way is a trendsetter in storytelling, but that's like almost the exact opposite end of the spectrum from Metal Gear, the way that Half-Life tells the story. Ocarina of Time, which I think is well-regarded story-wise. I mean, it should be. Thief, the Dark Project, an incredibly great game with almost no storytelling in front of the player. It's just, it's just different. Like these, you know, half of these games have no voice acting whatsoever. Half-Life has four voice actors doing all the same. Like Griffin Nago has a good voice cast, but that's a, point-and-click adventure game. It's not a full 3D stealth game with a crazy engine and all this. Like Just the difference between MGS and everything else that could have possibly come out in 1998 is startling. And that game came out in September. It wasn't like it was some launch title. It wasn't like it was this big... I mean, it was a big release, but it wasn't like it was you know, the cyberpunk of its day. Hey, it worked. Um... (laughs) But it's just, it's really, it's really hard. And if you weren't playing games in 98, which I was aware of games in 98, it's really hard even to to properly contextualize, like in your, in your brain to hold that this game, it's the same thing with two, two came out around the same time as the first Halo and like Final Fantasy 10 and Super Smash Brothers Melee. Great games. Those games were not doing anything on the same level as Metal Gear Solid 2. And it's just, it's, it's really it's remarkable, A, how well it's held up, but B, like, I can't even imagine what playing Metal Gear Solid in 1988 would have been like. And in fact, I hope that if we ever have guests on this show, we get somebody who, who did play it in 1988 or somebody who played it in 2020. I think those are the two extremes we should aim for. But, like, I'm, I, it's really it's really remarkable. Like, the only thing I can think of is 
being an anime fan in, in the mid eighties and Akira coming out and just being so different. It's just something just way beyond what you have poss- could have possibly imagined at that point. Yeah. I'm almost glad that it happened then because I'm trying to imagine the think pieces now of a game like that coming out. I mean, every, every major triple A release is credited as now. Well, now they're all just like a movie or they're like last of us where everyone either hates it or fawns over it completely uncritically. We would absolutely get think pieces about, is this a game or is this a book? Is this a game? Is this a movie? I just want to sit down and play my Mario and jump on play. Like, <laughs> there would be no engagement with what Kojima is trying to do here. Um, and I think one thing that really speaks to why Metal Gear kind of stands out is that Kojima and his team has always tried to get every last bit they can out of a platform, out of a console. Um, whether it's at the start of a, a, a console's life cycle or at the um, end of it, like this this kind of is near the end of the PlayStation 1 life cycle. Um, I am one of those people who played it in 1998, um, maybe a month after launch or two, because my buddy had the PlayStation. He had to beat it first and then show me how to beat it because, you know, he's that kind of person. But um, I think the cinematics are definitely something that strike me. But I think the voice acting more than anything was the first time I really heard consistent voice acting through a video game, at least at least on a console. I had played some PC games that had it. Um, and not just like terrible first, you know, cut uh, audio. Like there was obviously some effort put into it, even though, you know, not necessarily all the great, uh, all the voice performances are great. Um, but the fact that it had a coherent plot told as part of the game where it's not just like, you know, text bubbles that pop up every now and then. Like, yeah, I think Final Fantasy VI has a fantastic story. I think uh, the Zelda games generally have a great story behind them, even though they don't really force you to necessarily engage with the narrative, you know, that much. Um, I do think there are good stories to it. But this is the first time I felt we were seeing something that's, oh, I could watch a TV show of this or I could watch a movie of this. Um Kind of as is, and I think a big part of that is that uh, he decided to use um, kind of the same engine for the cinematics as the game itself. Because um, Final Fantasy VII, um, which came out the previous year, um, had some pretty jaw-dropping graphics at the time, but they also had like three levels of rendering characters, which we kind of talked about in the previous episode. Um, so you knew it was like, oh, this is a cutscene, this is story, but I'm not going to be involved with it in any way. Um, I'm just going to watch what happens like it's a movie. And then I have this separate part of the game where I actually play as Cloud and uh, Aerith and T- Tifa, um, and I move around and stuff. But that looks totally different. Um, part of the immersion, and I think the term Kojima you would use is digital fusion, um, is making the same uh, engine running both so that it's kind of cutting between the two um, without, you know, making you feel like you're no longer part of the experience. Yeah. Um, which, you know, again, some people complain about because of the extended length of cutscenes or codec calls, but I think that's what's going on here. The codec calls in, in MGS are more functional too. Like, they're, they're, more of them are teaching you what the game is and how to play the game, which. Again, in 98, stealth games, I mentioned Thief, that had come out. I think the Tenchu had come out then. But it was still... 3D stealth was still a pretty new concept. And I think more than any other game, MGS sort of codified what it is and, and like taught us how to do it, I guess, is the, what I'm looking for. And so, I, I honestly, the cutscenes... It's because the game is not that long, but I don't think the cutscenes in one are, are particularly egregious. Oh yeah, no, I I don't at all. But um, again, we're uh, 
coming into it with a lot of people who had only played Mario's and Zelda's where um, I want to think what the longest cutscene is in Ocarina of Time. It can't be more than like three or four minutes, um, probably, you know, right in the intro probably or when you first get to Hyrule Castle. Yeah. Um, so, I, I mean, there's definitely some stuff, uh, but ne- never anything. And I, I actually found that part really enjoyable about Metal Gear Solid in 1998 because that's also when I started getting into film and watching movies that weren't just, you know, kind of for young adults or whatever. I started watching like The Godfather or The Rock and Die Hard and stuff that uh, would be directly referenced in this game. So with that, uh, do you want to, I mean, we've kind of started talking about the game. We could, I think we should, I think we should go over the the cast a little because it's a fun, it's a fun cast. It's a very like, I don't know if it's because these people are all in, all in this game, but it's a very established cast at this point. Yeah, um, all of these people would basically go on to be, um, what's it called, regular video game or, um, you know, animated voice actors. Um, in fact, I don't know if you saw this, but I believe the cast of the original Metal Gear Solid got together for like a Zoom call just last night. I haven't had a chance to listen to it. And actually, it's more than just um, that because it has the Kaz Miller from... Uh, the Peace Walker and... Uh, Robin Knocking Downs, yeah. There you go. But yeah, we should talk about the voice acting a little bit. Um, and, you know, where else do we start with Metal Gear Solid than Solid Snake, David Hayter? The GOAT. Legitimately one of the better performances in any. Like, the voice itself is is a little more of a meme than it should, than it deserves to be because he's great. And he's really good. And I think Metal Gear Solid 1 is his best performance, personally. Yeah, I'm trying to think. Yeah, it would it would either have to be that or Peace Walker, maybe. Um, but I, I think I'm with you. I think Metal Gear Solid One. I think Metal Gear Solid One also has possibly the best script, and we'll get into why a little bit later. Um, and I think that helps a little bit too. There's not really much else to say about. I mean, if if you're listening to this, you probably have heard him before, and you know what he sounds like. And it's just the guy's. A, it's a legendary performance. And I, I also want to stress that it's it's a unique performance. Um, because, you know, he gets animated. You can basically get the whole range of emotions, but um, his voice performance, it's just not like how I would imagine the lead, even like a Bruce Willis in a Die Hard or, you know, a James Bond. Like, it's nothing like any of the action heroes, like that voice performance. Um, you know, it's gravelly, it's gritty, it's very similar to Snake Plissken from um, Escape from New York. Um, but how he actually works through emotions, how he delivers his more inspirational moments or, you know, the self-deprecating moments. Like, you can feel that all yeah. um, through that gritty, gravelly voice. And it's one of those things where it's so good, it almost feels like a lot of people are trying to ape it at times. And, you know, it just doesn't work in other contexts or without the nuances of his performance. Well, the, the you mentioned it. I mean, it's, it's obvious that he's model after Snake Plissken because he, he shares Snake Plissken's uh, primary character trait of uh, responding to statements with questions all the time. Metal Gear. President of what? Yeah. This famous thing was gonna line. <laughs> uh yeah, that's that's what he does. Especially the first like two hours of that game. I would say a good three fourths of David Hader's lines are him saying asking a question or saying something incredulously. And it still works. It still works as a guy it works because it, it hammers on one of my favorite little uh, themes of the game, which is that he doesn't he has no idea what's going on. <laughs> yeah he was woefully underprepared on purpose he's being kept in the dark like he's just a, a tool of the government or someone else uh- <laughs> <laughs> yeah and i think this is this is a theme we'll see across the metal gear solid franchise um and i think that's why his performance generally works in all of them um actually all of david Hayter's performances work i have no issues with him in any no, of these games no. we'll move on because we're actually probably going to have an episode very much dedicated to solid snake himself um or mostly about him and 
we'll definitely be talking about Hayter's performance in that. I do want to mention that David Hayter also is the reason we got a decent initial X-Men movie. It's true. Because that went through production hell and script rewrites. And basically, I'm the apocryphal story is David Hayter got a copy and was like, no, you got the X-Men all wrong here. Um, and then he kind of put together a basically what I think is a, you know, it's a good movie. It's not great. It's not something I hold as a, you know untouchable, unassailable, great comic book movie, even by those uh, curved standards. Um, but it was good. It's enough to keep making those. Yeah, it works. It, it it works to help introduce what the X-Men are, which is the point of that movie. Yeah. He also wrote The Scorpion King, or he had some hand in that, if I remember correctly. So he's two for two. Two for two. I remember seeing that movie the first day it came out, mostly because that was when we were going to theaters and just like, what's new? Oh, let's go watch that. Yeah. And boy, when the when the rock was, what, a ghost or a waterfall or like a thing of water and he gave the people's eyebrow, um, that, that shit is cinema right there. Um, that's just- True magic. Amazing stuff. And it looked great. Um, <laughs> But, um, God, I don't even know where to continue with uh, the voice cast here. I would say shout out to Christopher Randolph for being the second main character of the series. And being a very – Otacon is not a masculine character in like in the traditional Japanese or American way. But he ends up being, to me, one of the most heroic people in the series. And it's just a very good, tender performance Christopher Randolph always gives. She's very consistent. He always sounds like Otacon. He always has the right inflections as Otacon. And like, that's tough. Again, in 98, we can't say for sure what kind of voice direction. It's obviously good, but it's very fortunate that it was good because it's it's really easy to let, especially a game being dubbed, it's really easy to lose focus and just come out with something unintentionally funny. As opposed to when Metal Gear is trying to be funny, it's funny. It's 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 tough and it's a, it's a good balancing act. And I, I mentioned that because because Otacon is the comic relief character for most of this game. Right. Yet somehow is the most sympathetic and, and like relatable character in it, which is tough. It's, it's a good performance. Yeah, because I don't think you're ever really supposed to relate to Solid Snake. I mean, he's cool and he's a badass. He might be someone like, you know, someone with a teenage brain might aspire to in some sense, um, but he's not really that kind of character in the same way. But Hal Emmerich, uh, who we should say is the full name of... Um, Christopher Randolph's character, um, but we we will call him affectionately Otacon. Um, he's almost kind of a quasi um, proxy for the person who's playing the game. Someone you know who's more of a nerd, more into his anime. Um, probably pisses his pants a couple times a day. Um, I shouldn't make fun of people with incontinence, but I think that's you know as close as we have to like a proxy within the story itself. It's it's Hal. He's the dude. And I love him. He's like my favorite wet soft boy. He cries all the time. Every game he cries. And it's good. It's good to cry. Yeah. Because it's it's always tied to it. Well, it's always good to cry no matter what the reason. Well, it's always tied to it's always tied to it. The female character in his life dying, which is always good. <laughs> it's what we want. Yeah. It's definitely what we want to see written, uh, you know, in popular media. But um, there's there's a lot of emotion there. Um, he's a fleshed out character. Um, just like we'll get into how Solid Snake carries the sins of his father. Um, Hal Emmerich has a really fucked up family history that we'll get into with future games. So he himself is trying to break free of this curse of his family, always trying to, 
you know, they've always ended up aiding the engines of war as opposed to um, science or peace or the things that scientists think they're going to do when they get into whatever profession that is. So he carries that guilt and his energy to, you know, kind of atone for his sins, carries him basically from uh, when he meets Solid Snake in this game through the end of the series. Yeah. I mean, whenever he's on, I, it's one of the only regrets I have of the, uh, the big boss era games is that there's not, there is an equivalent character, but it's it's a very different character from uh, from Otacon. Much angrier character. And you're definitely not supposed to like him as much. <laughs> no. But yeah, it's just very good. I, I guess we don't have to go through everybody because those are the two main characters to me. But like, it's just, it's it, looking down the list of everyone else. It's just, a, it's a, pretty much everybody who's like a major character became a very well, like well-respected and professional voice actor. Starting, of course, with Jennifer Hale one of the one of the greats yeah for sure she's not even in the game that much but she's you know she's an extremely important character who we can get into later uh naomi hunter uh is who jennifer hale plays and we'll she'll definitely come up when we get to the synopsis of the story um i believe the only other one i w- wanted to throw out was uh cam clark uh who plays liquid snake uh can you give me a good brother no <laughs> damn it <laughs> i'm gonna i'm gonna keep uh poking brian i, I can do the ocelot one but i can't do i can't do any sort of British accent of any kind. British or South African or what what exactly he's trying to mimic. Um, but uh, Cam Clark is one of our great over-the-top uh, voice acting performances in the Metal Gear series. Uh, he plays Liquid Snake, um, who is the twin clone of Solid Snake, which, again, we'll get into with the plot shortly. Um, but his performance is uh, deliciously over-the-top and worth highlighting. Um, a fun fact about all these voice performances is that only David Hayter was properly credited in the game himself. Everyone else was given um, a pseudonym or, you know, a fake name. Yeah, including James Flinders <laughs> for Cam Clark. Everybody loves James Flinders. Uh, sorry, I was trying to do the Ned Flanders song, but... Stupid, sexy Flinders. Yeah. Um, so, And they have some really goofy names on some of these. We're not going to go through any of them, but um, I think it speaks to the fact that... Um, voice acting and voice acting in video games like there weren't really any standards or unions or i mean there were unions for voice actors but how video games worked into that um i don't think any of that had been established metal gear solid kind of you know put voice acting on the radar for at least console games in a big way um so that stuff would get ironed out in future games both metal gear and not um but i think there was just it was kind of wild wild west in terms of voice acting for back then yeah So now, we'll give you an official synopsis of Metal Gear Solid 1998. The year is 2005. The nuclear weapons facility on Shadow Moses Island in Alaska's Fox Archipelago. Foxhound Commander Roy Campbell has pulled Solid Snake out of retirement, once again, for a solo sneaking mission, not far from Snake's retirement home in Alaska. The mission is to infiltrate the Shadow Moses Nuclear Weapons Facility, which has been taken over by former members of Foxhound and a battalion of next-generation genome soldiers. What more, the commander of the renegade Foxhound unit is Liquid Snake, the man who shares a codename and physical profile with Solid. The terrorists are demanding the remains of Big Boss, and if they do not receive it, they will launch a nuclear strike. Snake is tasked with infiltrating and assessing the potential for nuclear strike, stopping the terrorist unit, and rescuing hostages who work for the arms industry. Snake infiltrates the nuclear disposal facility, but the story starts complicating itself as Snake learns more. 
First, those hostages, DARPA Chief Donald Anderson and Arms Tech President Kenneth Baker, both die under unusual circumstances when first encountering Snake. What appears to be a heart attack takes both of them. Second, Snake learns that his former friend-turned-enemy Gray Fox, remember that name, survived the minefield in Zanzibar land and has come back as a cyborg ninja, seemingly neither living or dead. Next, Snake ends up meeting a lone female soldier amongst the genome troopers, who reveals herself to be the niece and daughter of Commander Roy Campbell. Uh, Her name is Meryl. And um, right around then, Snake also meets his soon-to-be life partner, Hal Emmerich, who we described, uh, voiced by Christopher Randolph, um, and codename Otacon. And this is when he learns that the facility is cover for the development of a new Metal Gear project. Metal Gear. Through his infiltration, Snake defeats every member of Foxhound in turn, and they all have very long, dramatic, and sometimes over like ridiculous death speeches. Although Ravens, I guess, isn't very long. And eventually discovers that the leader, Liquid Snake, the man with the same codename as Solid Snake, are not only brothers, but they are clones, and clones of the legendary soldier himself, Big Boss, which means that Snake has killed his father twice, which is... You know, that's that's always good for your self-esteem. The genome soldiers are also clones of Big Boss. That's not really that important. It just kind of plays into the concept of... I honestly never like that, personally. The idea is that they they want Big Boss's remains to make a, make all these perfect soldiers, and they already have clone soldiers of Big Boss. It never it doesn't really fit. But, I mean, I know they need him, they need his body for to help maintain all this stuff, but it's also... Liquid says several times, like, they need to... They want to make a larger army and like, it just doesn't really fit together very well. It's kind of a half formed plot line. I always felt like. Yeah. um, Just the idea behind it. And I don't think it holds up. I agree with you is that um, these next generation soldiers, they're not clones of big boss, like snake or liquid are. They have his, they have his genes. Yeah. They have some of his. Yeah. They've like identified soldier genes that make you a good soldier. Um, and they've tried to treat these soldiers with gene therapy, um, you know, to improve their soldier, um, you know, skills. But also one of the members of Foxhound, uh, Psycho Mantis, was kind of controlling the soldiers. And when Snake killed Psycho Mantis, that kind of control over the genome soldiers fell apart. Um, so they were hoping that also, um, you know, the genetics of Big Boss could help, you know, keep them in line i'm not entirely sure i don't think it's great yeah the thing is they 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 wanted big boss's genetics before snake kills psychomantis right right and so like like that was already a thing and then like also that it doesn't really fit as it's kind of a plot hole because if psychomantis is holding your entire army together why are you making him fight snake yeah exactly and he's like specifically put like you go there to stop snake like halfway through like before he even fights the other half of the um uh, foxhound unit so um, very strange choice. You can maybe retcon it based on some of the stuff we learned in MGS4 and that their real purpose was what they wanted Big Boss's body for in MGS4. I, um, I don't, don't want to get into yeah. that right now. Um, I don't think that's it. That's, you know, if I was putting on my fanboy hat and saying everything in Metal Gear Solid makes sense, that's probably the argument I'd go with, but not everything in Metal it Gear. It doesn't. It's not supposed to. Yes. Sorry, we we took a tangent there. That'll happen. Yeah, well, it's, it's weird. It's a, it's it's. It's a plot that part doesn't always make sense. Anyways, the rev- the big revelation in the game, uh, it's a recurring theme for the series, is that Snake is a patsy. He's not actually meant to stop. Well, I, I suppose he's supposed to stop Metal Gear, but he's he's not really meant to defeat anyone. He's just the carrier for a biological agent named Fox Die, which 
uh, you know, fittingly kills the members of Fox. It's why the Armstead president and Donald Anderson die. It's supposedly why Liquid dies. It, it, that's always a little... I mean, Liquid dies so many times at the end of the game. <laughs> <laughs> what actually killed him is hard to tell. Yeah, uh, I mean, he, he had fallen... He he fell from the top of Metal Gear after a minute after telling Snake that the fall would kill him. He gets shot with a gun a hundred times. He blows up. But yeah, the, the Fox die is what eventually quote unquote kills Liquid. Well, okay, we should say that it kills Donald Anderson. It doesn't kill Donald. Donald Anderson was already dead. It kills Decoy Octopus, who is a member of Fox. And that's another thing that doesn't really fit is is the Decoy Octopus thing. We can talk about him later. He's not very important. Yeah, so um, Snake was a patsy in a couple ways, not just for the U.S. government going in as essentially a biological agent to kill these people, but in fact, uh, Liquid and Revolver were... Liquid Snake and Revolver Ocelot were basically using Snake to try to activate Metal Gear, um, input the launch codes, because there was a trick with activating and getting the nuke ready to go um, that they didn't know, and they had killed... the DARPA chief, Donald Anderson. Um, so that's why Decoy Octopus was posing as him trying to get that information from Snake. Um, again, like all these Metal Gears, there's going to be a lot of twists and turns that we might elide in our synopses, um, but we'll circle back to them as they matter for themes. But um, So Snake was basically being played by every you know interest group involved in the Shadows of Moses Innocent incident. Um, the government's trying to use him for some purpose. Um, the terrorists tried to use him for their purposes. Uh, Naomi Hunter tried to use him or basically set him up for her own purposes. Um, Snake is really one of the few characters here who really doesn't have as much agency, even though he's the player you control, which I think is one of the parts about uh, Metal Gear Solid is that it's always challenging the fact that you're ever in control of the situation. A good nine years before Bioshock hammered that point home probably too hard. Yes, But yeah, and uh, just to, you know, give a clear, you know, how this game ends, it's basically um, you you end up activating Metal Gear for uh, Liquid and Revolver. You have to face Metal Gear. Uh, Gray Fox sacrifices himself um, to help you defeat Metal Gear. Um, What's left is you and Liquid, um, where you fight mano and mano. Um, You had spent the entire game, you know, basically turning yourself into a one-man army, getting rocket launchers, bazookas, you know, seeking missiles, all that stuff. Um, But in the end, you're just, you know, topless. Both of you are. It's quite gay. Um, And you fight, you know, hand-to-hand with your twin clone brother on top of a ruined Metal Gear Rex. Also, the Secretary of Defense betrays you and tries to nuke the entire area, but then Campbell stops him. It, that's all codex stuff. It doesn't really. That's one of the things I don't think hits as hard is the whole all, everything to do with with Secretary Houseman because he never shows up in the game and it's just like a guy calling you to threatening you, and then ten minutes later somebody else calls you and he's like, "Oh, we took care of that guy." It's like, oh, "Thanks." Yeah, I think if they were able to tie Houseman closer to the president or acting on behalf of the president, and maybe there's a throwaway line in there about how he's doing it under the president's orders. Because in the end, after we defeat Liquid Snake, you know, we get end credits, we get a coda with, you know, Snake and either Meryl or Otacon, depending on how you did in the torture scene. Otacon for me, I'd never, I could never do that, no. I could never beat the torture scene either. So you have your kind of, you know, denouement and you're uh, right off into the sunset with Snake, Otacon, and or Meryl. Um, and, you know, roll credits, play the best is yet to come, this tremendous piece of music that's written in Gaelic um, that's actually the closing music for our podcast. So please enjoy and listen to it. 
But so you get all that end credit stuff. And then Metal Gear Solid, you know, years before the MCU um, starts laying down its post credit scene. Uh, and we find out that Revolver Ocelot has uh, escaped the Shadow Moses um, facility. He has all the Metal Gear test data. So he's able to, you know, lead to an age of Metal Gear proliferation. And then we learn that he's been working alongside the president this entire time that he was almost a sleeper agent within liquid's uh, foxhound unit um and that he's actually been working for the third uh son of big boss known as solidus snake who is the president what the fuck what the fucking fuck so at this point he's still a triple agent then because he's working oh boy Oh, yeah. So I started thinking about this today. Where, What exactly is Ocelot doing at the end of MGS1 and in the tanker stage of MGS2? Because um, I'm unsure if he's working for Solidus or if he's trying to work for the Patriots. A little of both. So he's still, he's working for, he's working for Big Boss in, in the, the bottom level. that we, we know that. So Big Boss to Patriots, double, er, yeah, double agent. Yeah, he's a quadruple agent. <laughs> yeah. And he becomes a he becomes a quintuple agent once Golukovich gets involved, which is yeah. I mean, it's it's his character. It that's his character trait. That and and having the greatest handgun ever made. Um, right. So we'll we'll say this in Metal Gear Solid Three. You'll find out what the love of Ocelot's life is and who he is most loyal to above all else uh, when he meets uh, Naked Snake, who becomes Big Boss, and then basically everyone else he ever works for ever he's betraying them on some level. I think that's about sums it up. What do you think? I was going to say including Big Boss, but that's not Big Boss. So, yeah. Yeah, Jesus. <laughs> so, um, you're, pro- you're probably properly confused by all our asides. Um, that summary um, is probably a lot. Um, I think the big thing is um, Solid Snake, go into house, kill brother, blow up robot. Apparently, there's a lot of other shit that's going on that'll be explored in future games. Gray Fox die, man sad. Yeah. The, th- the thing about that game, too, is it's like six hours long. There's just a straight run through. It's surprising how well it still makes sense on its own, considering the synopsis we just gave, which is confusing. Yeah, it's really not meant for a synopsis. Like, um, we modeled our outline based off a Wikipedia article. And even with all the additional information we gave up front and during, um, it's kind of, you know, impenetrable in a way. Um, and I, I wouldn't say impenetrable, it's just dense. Yeah, I would say, though, I will say that Solid still has a through line of just stop Metal Gear that still, like, it has a, a time limit. It has a one pressing thing that he has to do over everything else that I think helps it, especially compared to two. I don't know what we're going to do for two. Yeah, I think this is the last game where kind of Metal Gear, the actual giant walking robot, is like the end all and be all of the game. Um, all the other games carry the title forward, but what's actually happening or the root of the story um, goes much deeper or Metal Gear is a much smaller part in a bigger um, story. Even three. Yeah. Because like Shagohod is not, Shagohod is the, is, you know, is the prototype, Metal Gear, but the, the philosopher's legacy is the right actual plot device that the game, you know, uh, revolves around. Yeah. Um, and and it, it always ends up being a core part of like, you know, the, one of the last big battles in every game is always going to be some Metal Gear equivalent. So the trope of the Metal Gear uh, boss fight is always going to be there in some capacity. Um, it just it's no longer the reason the games are titled over Metal Gear. I wouldn't say makes less sense, but is less applicable that that's the core part of what the story is going to be about. Yeah. 
So um, we should also take a minute to talk about some of the mechanics of the game, um, because I do think they go hand in hand, both with the story in terms of just, you know, being one of the same genre, but also it'll end up reinforcing themes and character stuff that we're going to talk about in subsequent episodes. Um, So the obvious one, the first one we talked about ahead of all this is that it's basically a hide and seek game with stealth mechanics. You can crawl, um, you can press up against walls uh, to peek what's coming around the corner. Um, you can go into first person view, you have binoculars, you have, you know, all sorts of things to kind of get a sense of setting around you to figure out how to get through without being seen. I think one of the most interesting things about the whole, the the mechanics of the game as a whole is that the first area, the helipad and like just the first interior area is by far the most open-ended. It's just strange. Yeah. Um, because it, it becomes very linear after that. And then it becomes, then it gets into boss fight mode for a while. And then it kind of never really gets back to that big, sort of what Metal Gear is known for is the big, the big sandbox area of like just messing with guards, trying to figure out patterns. And it never really gets back to that. And that it's, it's a, it's a testament to how well the story carries this game that you kind of, I think in your brain, in your mind's eye, you see Metal Gear as, the helipad but a hundred times when it's not that right yeah and i think you know um, you know some of that's probably also just system limitations there's like three or four things that you can do to make it like truly your own personal playthrough yeah. um, like how you enter the facility you know the top level or the bottom level um how you do in the torture scene um you know there are a couple things where depending on what you do um, if you like castlevania or not yeah ex- i was about to mention uh psychomantis you like reading your memory card you? <laughs> Ooh, like konami games um i think every uh game after metal gear solid does a does a much bigger job of giving you multiple ways to do things um but this is kind of the start of it this is like the ur text of it um but it's definitely very limited and i think one thing because of all the space they have to use to allocate to voice, you know, performances, to cutscenes, mm-hmm. codec calls, um, you f- you'll find that they have little tricks and maybe not tricks, maybe cheats would be a word some people would use, where you have to just, where they reuse old maps or have you backtrack, um, you know, just because they didn't have room, you know, for more maps or a, n- a different room to do stuff in. I think the biggest evidence of that is is when uh, when he when Snake will meet somebody. And they'll talk in person for, you know, I don't know, 45 seconds. And then they'll talk on the codec for five minutes. Because, like, they just, they, like, we, we don't have that. We can't animate, animate all this. Like, it's just not going to fit in the game. Right. And, again, it's it's strange how it works. The, the performances are good enough and the script is good enough that it still, it works. The next mechanic I wanted to mention was uh, it has a survivalist inventory approach. Uh, something I think would be more perfected uh, by the time we get to Metal Gear Solid 3. Um, Mm -hmm. But the idea here is very much drawn from, um, I'd say Die Hard um, is the one that comes to mind, where you count every bullet that you have in your inventory. Um, You kind of, you start with nothing. Um, A key feature of all these games is that uh, weapons and equipment is OSP, (laughs) on-site procurement. Um, I had to get that acronym in there. I was going to if you didn't. So um, you basically, you go in naked um, and you basically acquire all the equipment. And by the end, by the time you're facing down Metal Gear, you have assault rifles, you have rocket launchers, you have night vision goggles, um, cardboard boxes, like basically everything you could imagine in a military setting and a couple of things you would never imagine. Um, those are the stuff you acquire. And the game rewards you if you t- generally take the time, what's it called, to... 
um, you know, crawl over the maps and find all this stuff. Then, uh, and then moving along with crawling across all these maps, um, is, uh, the Soliton radar, which is a key staple of the first two games. Um, the Soliton radar exists in the upper right corner of the screen and basically gives you the location of all the enemies on a given map, as well as their quote unquote cone of vision, which is basically a triangle emanating from, you know, their face. Um, I don't know the exact radius and the distance they can see, but the general idea is if you go somewhere near that cone or make a sound near that cone, um, the a guard will be alerted and will investigate whatever that sound is. Or if you just straight up walk into the cone, um, the guard will see you um, trigger an alert and go from there. I think also, I, I can't say for sure if that's completely invented by Metal Gear Solid, but it's not the way that, like, th- say, Thief did stealth at that point, because Thief was a first-person game, so it was more just, like, line of sight. The vision cone... Used, you know, most prominently in uh, the mid two thousands Maddens. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> but no, I, I, that that's one of the true things that still feels like an like, just as as far as like a quality of life improvement for the game because I'm sure it didn't have it at some point. Yeah, and just sort of a nice user friendly. It's one of the few user friendly things in the whole game. I feel like. Yeah, um, and that's also been a source of a little bit of criticism for uh, the first two Metal Gear Solid games is that it's very easy to play those uh, maps that you're supposed to sneak around as kind of a Pac-Man game uh, where you can kind of focus in on the radar um, and maybe miss out on all the cute and cool environmental stuff that's going on in the game itself. Um, So I don't think it's that big of a problem. I think it's just it made sense for that game at that time. Um, You did not have a free roaming camera like you would in Metal Gear Solid 3 subsistence and going forward, um, which really allows you to, um, you know, go towards that thief approach. And I think the other thing is, if you remember the first time you fight Sniper Wolf uh, with that uh, long hallway where uh, she initially shoots Meryl, I think there is issues with uh, some of the draw distance, um, like uh, with some of the additional guards that are in that hallway um, beforehand. So like if you go into first person mode all the way at the back end of a hall, um, it won't render guards that are down there that you can see with your sniper scope if you put that on. Yeah. Um, so it's a little bit limit limitations of technology, but um, it was a very key staple. And I will admit when we get to Metal Gear Solid 3 and I didn't have that radar for the first time, it threw me for a loop. I'm like, I'm supposed to look around at what the game wants me to see. That's that's not how we do things in Metal Gear. But I think that's a uh, important part. And as we discussed, um, sight and sound are very important to uh, this game, to the Soliton radar, to the stealth mechanics and survivalist approach. Um, A fun thing about the development of this game is that the game was basically, instead of designed from the character first outwards to the environments, basically the environments were designed first and then, you know, the characters and everything were put in there. And that's why a lot of the game is so seamless, um, where the camera moves seamlessly from, you know, your normal view to your uh, view against the wall, uh, first person view. Um, These were kind of the challenges that a lot of... uh, people were trying to figure out with the newness of 3D games. And uh, Kojima and his team at Konami, they kind of worked outside in as opposed to, you know, starting with character design and how they want characters to behave in the world. They kind of defined how they want the environment to behave and then created uh, models within that. And then just a couple other things uh, we've kind of mentioned. These games are built on big set pieces, um, especially around the boss battles, usually against an elite soldier unit like Foxhound in this game. Um, But there's also generally uh, vehicle um, 
battles as well. Um, you know, like fighting a tank. Just a few. Yeah, a tank, a hindy, a Metal Gear, you know, just one or two along the way. Is the tank fight even a boss fight? I know it is, but like, come on. It it's 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 the weak. It's so easy. Yeah, you just gotta you just throw a little couple little guys into that tank and it all blows up. So uh so that's kind of just the game design aspect. We'll get more into this because a lot of this does inform themes and character into later episodes, but um we do kind of want to talk about the impact of this game. What did Metal Gear Solid mean for either the franchise or for games after its release? Well, I mean for the franchise, it made it a franchise. I think I feel like most people and that's kind of the thing. Uh, with games like the late era 2D games, mostly weren't, I wouldn't say people consider them franchises. I mean, part of that's the way that we consume media now. You know, everything is a multimedia brand and everything everything is, is consum- you know, made to be consumed. Whereas I think, especially like as NES, more than SNES era games, they were just kind of like throwing out whatever they felt like and then they would just do something else. Nintendo is famous for that. For If it wasn't Mario... In the, in the late 80s, they just kind of threw games out. And they're like, well, people like that one. We'll get another one. And it, there was no there's no grand corporate plan for, like, you know, a content delivery. There's no roadmap for the future. And I feel like Metal Gear came around, Metal Gear Solid came around at the exact time that that started to be something. And it very quickly, like, it has one of the strongest immediate brands of any late 90s game, I feel like. Because like 3D Zeldas had just started, and I think people didn't know like what that was going to be. Final Fantasy had a brand. That's that's who I'm thinking of specifically. Like Dragon Quest had a brand. But uh, as far as like Western games, and it's not a Western game, but it it is in a lot of ways. It's aspiring to be a Western action product. Yeah, it's very Western influenced, and it feels very targeted towards a Western audience. In the same way that something like. Cowboy Bebop is is what I'm thinking of. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a great great example right there. So uh, continuing on with some of the tropes that uh, this game established for the series, um, the final boss uh, being Liquid Snake. Um, almost every game ends with some version of a snake versus snake character or a snake versus boss character. Um, there's even ones where they kind of flip that on you, where you you're, you you are a fake snake and you fight a fake boss or fake snake character i'm thinking of metal gear solid 2 when you're riding fighting solidus Mm -hmm. um but that's a key part and usually the climax of the game uh we already talked about an elite boss unit usually um you know some kind of military unit anti-terrorist unit that goes rogue um that's what uh foxhound is in this game that's what dead cell is in uh mgs2 it's what it kind of it's weird yeah um and then it's a little bit what cobra unit is in uh, mgs3 um, it's going rogue is weird because of the geopolitics of both the game and the world that <laughs> is happening. Um, but basically that's kind of the gist of it. Moving on, there's always a torture scene or some kind of torture analog in all these games. Yes. They tend to be interactive. Um, some like Metal Gear Solid, um, actually affect the outcome of the game. Um, if you submit to torture in Metal Gear Solid, uh, Meryl dies later and you, um, ride off into the sunset with Otacon. Um, and if you are able to resist the torture, Meryl survives and you ride into the sunset with Meryl. Uh, regardless, uh, both characters survive for the sake of canon in the game. 
game also generally ends with a giant Metal Gear battle or something equivalent to a Metal Gear. Um, not a big deal. That's it's a real it's a real fun part of the games, but usually not the most important um, necessary necessary part of the game. Um, these games all have like dynamic game over screens, usually where your support team is like calling like snake, snake, can you hear me? Snake, um, like really escalated. They become, they become more and more sort of, uh, playful and self-referential as time goes on also. Yeah. Um, and that was definitely something that I had never really seen before. Usually you just got like a sad three, three melody, you know, three beat melody thing and then game over screen continue. And, you know, um, the game over start was never really part of the game experience, really. And I think that goes to my next point here is that Metal Gear Solid is a game that's kind of always in conversation with the player and is always engaging the medium as a whole. Um, It's not just the story you're seeing on the screen. It's the controller in your hands. It's the controller ports on the PlayStation. It's characters deliberately calling out controller buttons or uh, telling you to use the CD case to find a code. I think the biggest way that the, the most influential and important, and I was meaning to say this earlier, the most important way that this game does this, it's maybe the first major game release that I can think of that makes sure, in, in a very postmodern way, actually, I don't mean like it's funny, which is how people use postmodern now. <laughs> uh, it, it deliberately it makes sure that you understand that you and Snake are different characters. Like you are, you are part of the story in a way that Snake is not, and I, that's that's something that is it's going to come up real big in Metal Gear Solid Two. But that's something that that I don't really know if a game, at least not a game that had voice acting to that point, ever really grappled with. And it's maybe the most fascinating thing about the series as a piece of art to me. I I agree, because um, it breaks the fourth wall, and it's definitely not the only game that breaks the fourth wall. But it's breaking the fourth wall, not just for a quick joke or, hey, check this guy out. It's literally part of the core themes. Um, And something we're going to get into, especially in the next couple episodes and the future games, is Kojima directly challenging the idea of a video game as a power fantasy. Because when you think about video games, the first thing that pops into my mind, especially now, is you're some character with a big ass gun and you're running through some map, you know, killing people, whether that's a GTA or a Halo or, and I'm not disparaging any of these games, um, but I think a core part of video games, especially as it's been part of uh, masculinized culture, so to speak, especially in the West, um, is very much games as a power fantasy. Well, this would have been particularly true in the 90s when Duke Nukem still yeah. reigned supreme. Or Doom. I, like, just getting gore in games and the ability to kill things and not stomp on Goombas was considered a growth for the medium yeah. at the time, which seems really silly. And it, it is silly. <laughs> but it, it, it's part of what I was talking about earlier. Like, this game came out two and a half years after Dude Nukem 3D. Dude Nukem 3D is very a fine shooter. Like, one terrific level design, really interesting puzzles, a lot of cool shit in that game. Imagine hearing Dude Nukem be like, damn, our chicks. And then two years later, Solid Snake shows up. Like, that's unfathomable to me. Yeah. I mean, that's like if, well, what came out two and a half years ago? Like, late 2018 like dishonored 2 came out and then now you this it's it's a it's not talked about enough we don't reckon with it enough how rapidly the medium changed from like 1993 to 2002 or so like just a huge amount of change and i think metal gear is at the foreground it's at the razor's edge of that 
Right. And uh, we talked about how Metal Gear felt like an adult game when time, you know, most games didn't feel that way. Um, I think this is kind of maybe the starting of where people um, probably my age, maybe a little older than me, who had grown up, you know, playing the original NES or, you know, the Famicom system, you know, all those old Atari ancient systems. I'm struggling to find the one I really want to name here. Um, But now we're entering uh, not just teenage years, but, you know, adulthood or maybe even going into the games industry because some of the other podcasts and writers I follow, um, the older ones started going into the industry right around the turn of the century. So um, you start seeing people who grew up with games start, you know, creating games and what that meant uh, for the medium. Um, And I think that's a big part of the growth. Um, I don't know if Kojima actually fits that mold, um, at least initially. Um, but I think Metal Gear Solid becomes one of those key touchstones that all those people getting into games, um, or at least for gaming audiences consuming games, that it really holds a lot of, you know, bandwidth or whatever, however you want to phrase it. Yeah. But uh, I'm going to talk a lot about this in future episodes because my core thesis with um, Metal Gear Solid is this whole it challenges the power of fantasy. So um, I'm going to make sure Brian is sick of me bringing this up um, by the end of this series. But. Um, moving on, I think the last thing we really want to touch on for this introductory episode is just that Kojima brings all of his cultural influences um, to the table uh, when he's making his games and telling his stories. Um, Metal Gear Solid is um, the first one is perhaps I don't know if it's the most of that, but I think you can more directly draw the parallels to its source material than, say, future games, which um, he does a little more work to hide it or obscure it or Kojima it up, so to speak. Um, But like in this game, references to Die Hard, like Die Hard is basically this game. Um, Just replace Nakatomi building with uh, Shadow Moses. Um, You could even combine. It's basically Die Hard in the setting of the thing. Um, And you are the guy from Escape from New York. that basically gets you to um, 80% of the general narrative of this story. Yeah, basically. Maybe a little more a little more of the old, like, I, I think specifically, I think Full Metal Jacket is a huge influence. Just the jargon and the way he, like, he's a huge Kubrick guy. So, like, he, I mean, Kojima is a big Kubrick guy. And I, I feel like that's where he gets a lot of, like, the flavor text from. Yeah. I mean, Escape from New York has that also, but Carpenter doesn't care as much about that stuff. Yeah, that's not as central to Carpenter's work as it is to, say, Kubrick's work. And I totally agree with you. And I also want to clarify, um, Kojima and I are both huge Kubrick guys. Like, I love Stanley Kubrick. Yeah. Um, It's not a bold opinion, and I'm basically sure Brian does as well. Um, But even our main characters, uh, we we didn't actually mention this. Solid Snake is named Dave or David. um, And Otacon's first name we did mention is Hal. They are Dave and Hal. Yeah. Um, So... All the influences of uh, Kubrick, I think, are it's it's like James Bond in a way. Like it's not just any one movie that's influencing Metal Gear Solid. It's like the entire oeuvre of Kubrick. Yeah. Um, and similarly, all of the James Bond movies kind of inform it, not just one or the other. It is important, really quickly, to make sure that like I, I wrote Predator down here. I think Predator is an influence. Die Hard is those movies, but not like Lethal Weapon, because those have. Those films are, and Die Hard is a wonderful film. I still wouldn't say, especially to someone who doesn't speak the language, I feel like Die Hard is not a lighthearted film. Bruce Willis makes it so in a lot of a lot of the ways, but yeah, I feel like the kind of bleak, like lone survivor, like one man against the world thing. That's that's the Die Hard he's he's really pulling from. I feel like. 
Yeah. Um, one of my friends on Twitter, John Reeves, said something along the lines that Die Hard has been aped and copied and even sequelized so much that you lose just how magical, dark, intense the actual original one is. Yeah. Um, it is, you know, a fun movie. Like you will enjoy yourself watching that movie, but there's a lot more going on than just It's also important that 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 it's a little bit like Keaton and Batman. Like Bruce Willis was a like a sitcom like a funny guy on sitcoms before that movie like it, that's that's where a lot of the i think a lot of the american a movie exists a lot in our imagination is like a happy touchstone and it is it's one of the, the greatest action films ever made but I, I do feel like and this may just be me projecting but i don't know if that movie comes off the same especially to someone like kojima who lives for that shit who loves like that exact tone that's his tone no, I definitely agree with you. Uh, the last one I wanted to throw out here um, was The Hunt for Red October. Um, I think there's some like obvious visual references, especially with the submarine that Snake uses to enter yeah, Shadow Moses. Visu- visually, yeah. Um, and it's definitely a visual influence. Um, the ending of Hunt for Red October, when Sean Connery and Alec Baldwin have to go track down the cook um, who is sabotaging the submarine, um, that's like the only real action sequence in that movie. Uh, but it's basically a Metal Gear action sequence. Uh, Alec Baldwin presses up against a giant cylinder. The camera pans back. Um, he climbs a ladder. He crawls. Um, yeah. And that, you know, I think a lot of the visual and the way the action works in this game comes from just that one scene. Um, but I do think Kojima, he has m- mentioned this movie specifically a lot. It's a spy movie. It's almost an action movie, but it's done with very little gunfire, um, a lot less battle and more thinking. Mm. And even though there's a lot of shooting in Metal Gear, and especially Metal Gear Solid 1, where there is no non-lethal playthrough, um, I do think he wants you to think about what are ways I can get through these puzzles or get past this map without shooting a gun. Um, I think that's a conceit that he'll really uh, refine in future games. Um, it's a little rough here, but... I wanted to make make sure I clarify that last the last thing I was talking about, too. is it's Yeah, sure, go. Because Metal Gear, there may be people listening to this who've never played Metal Gear, it's been memed. It's so memetic at this point that I think people treat it more like, I don't know if this is something you're familiar with, more like something like JoJo's Bizarre Adventure where it's sort of like a, it's so over the top and, and ridiculous that it's sort of deliberate. And it is deliberately over the top, but it, especially this game is not supposed to be a joke. It can be funny. But this is, yeah. this is a deathly serious game. Like everyone is very serious. Yeah. And I think this game, and this is something I'd love to talk about in a future episode is this game has legitimate horror elements to it. Yes. Um, more so than maybe any other game besides five. Um, and five has its own issues with that. So I think one is the best example of Kojima doing horror, uh, death stranding, notwithstanding, but like the gray Fox hallway sequence, the psycho mantis battle, um, even just the way that metal gear Rex is posed, um, you know, it feels like a kaiju, mm-hmm. um, more so than maybe in other games where you're fighting seven of them, or it's not as core to the plot like we talked about earlier. Um, but this game is legit horror um, at, for you know extended sequences. They're literal ghosts around Shadow Moses um, that you can find in the game uh, and take pictures of for bonuses, I believe. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Whew. Um, that's quite a lot. And uh, Kojima also tends to work in his favorite books into his works. Um, I couldn't find like a direct one to compare to Metal Gear Solid. But when we get into the future games, um, the books that uh, Kojima, uh, you know, loves and reads. There's there's, a, there's one I can think of for sure. <laughs> uh, you want to hit me with it? Oh, Moby Dick, obviously. 
Oh, okay, yeah. I was going to save that for MGS5, but yeah, yeah. But no, that's like the big, that's the big, the one I think of most, at least with him. Um, I think that makes sense. I, I definitely think there he loves Heart of Darkness. Um, you can definitely get a Colonel Kurtz vibe from some of his uh, characters, mm-hmm. um, maybe. Um, well, he definitely, uh, God, there's what, 1984 is a big influence on MGS5. Uh, the New York trilogy is a big influence for Metal Gear Solid 2. Um, I, I think um, he's, he stated his love for uh, John LeCar, you know, rest in peace. Um, I hope oh, yeah. he was a person. Of Christian faith. I don't want to say rest in peace uh, incorrectly there. I think that's a safe assumption. <laughs> um, but uh, he just passed. But it, yeah, he, he's very intricate uh, spy thrillers from Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy uh, to the man who came out, came in from the cold, I think it is. Um, and many other titles um, are very deep influences uh, for Kojima, as well as James Bond, which we mentioned, which exists as books as well as movies. So um, I think we'll t- pick apart the references as they work their way into um, the themes and the characters because he's not usually just referencing things, but he's often commenting on what he's referencing, yes. which I think is an important part of why why he's him and he's not like, I don't know, Zack Snyder who just throws stuff in because it looked cool, um, you know, that he loved from, you know, a comic book he read. A comic book that his friend described to him. Yeah, <laughs> I love that tweet. Um, or wh- whoever came up with that uh, take. That's brilliant. Um, so we'll get into those uh, references as we go. Um, but we're you know probably a little bit over an hour now. So let's close this down. Let's call that mission complete for this episode. Um, our frequency is uh, podcastsoundsfrontieres at gmail.com. Uh, please send us emails if you have questions or if you think anything with our format um, didn't work this time. Uh, we're still trying to feel things out. Um, and then also follow us on Twitter at PodSansFront. That's P-O-D-S-A-N-S F-R-O-N-T. Um, I've been Manu, um, also known as Manuclear Bomb. I've been Brian, and I will continue to be Brian. We're all born with an expiration date. No one lasts forever. <laughs> uh, please remember to like, review, subscribe. And as we're just getting started, please promote, boost, share, retweet as much as you can. Um, we're going to be available on all your favorite podcast applications uh, probably by the time this episode airs. So hopefully that's no longer a concern. Uh, so until next time, remember, the best is yet to come.
and stopping recording.